Hello, everyone, and welcome to another captivating episode of Unlocking Potential, the podcast that delves deep into the ever-evolving realm of 3D printing. I'm your host for today, Gabrielle, and today we're going to be embarking on a thrilling journey through the diverse landscape of additive manufacturing. What sets today's episode apart is that we've assembled a panel of experts who represent the full spectrum of 3D printing, spanning from the avid consumer to the heart of the industry. These experts are poised to guide us on an immersive exploration into the captivating world of 3D printing, its challenges, its triumphs, and the fascinating interplay between cutting-edge innovation and the creativity of everyday enthusiasts. Joining us today are three distinguished individuals who are at the forefront of 3D printing technology. Let's meet the experts on today's panel. Wyatt Levy, Beverly Tan, and Kevin Josel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Thank you very much, Gabriel. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So to start us off, let's begin with Wyatt and just go down the line, introducing ourselves and giving the audience a name, title, and just a brief bio. Certainly. Uh, my name is Wyatt Levy. I'm head of product development at Loctite 3D Printing. We are a brand of Hinkle Corporation. What I do here is lead the chemistry and product development team, really working with the chemists to develop cutting edge technologies and develop the next generation of uh, materials for photopolymer 3D printing. And Beverly. Awesome. I'm Beverly Tan. I am the co-founder of Ecovate 3D. We're a one-stop 3D printing shop for consumer and educational grade printers in Raleigh, North Carolina. We are one of the only places in the United States you can come and shopping for 3D printers and 3D printing supplies in person. We also do installations in universities, libraries, and schools. One of my passions is making 3D printing accessible to the consumer, to students, to your everyday person, both as a hobby and as a potential career. And Kevin. Yeah, Kevin Jelsel. I'm a sales executive with AMS Special UV, which is part of the Baldwin Technology uh, Companies. And uh, I've been here to bring uh, Baldwin uh, into the industrial UV curing market space. Fantastic. Thank you all for sharing. Well, we're going to begin here with Wyatt. So could you kick things off just by providing an overview of the various techniques employed in 3D printing, but also the role of Henkel in creating cutting edge materials? Certainly. The world of 3D printing and additive manufacturing is quite large. Uh, so uh, first off, thanks for uh, having me on the podcast as well. I'm really excited for this. Uh, super excited to see, uh, learn a little bit more from Beverly and her side really boots on the ground how uh, kind of the everyday uh, user uh, gets to experience 3D printing. So that's, that's a lot of fun for me because I'm often uh, behind the laboratory walls. Um, <laughs> so Within 3D printing and additive manufacturing, there are uh, so many different techniques. These are often broken down based on the type of material. There are, call it three key categories. We would call it metals, composites, and polymers. Technique certainly comes down to material type. The three most prevalent material types here um, have such a, a broad range and some even overlap to some degree. There's been a ton of innovation in each of these areas. Um, for metals, the most common method is DMLS, which is direct metal laser sintering. This includes basically a bed of micron or lower scale powders in a closed heated system. And you have a laser that traces the uh, layer of the part to fuse those particles together. Really, really incredible. Really melting little pieces of metal together to form this solid part. Um, for uh, 
uh, polymers, there are quite a range as well. And this comes down to material type to a pretty high degree. Uh, often we have a thermoplastic, which are most of the common plastics you see around day to day. This would be your plastic silverware or red solo cup. These are all forms of, or all uh, representations of thermoplastic materials. The most common method here is FDM or FFF, that's fused deposition modeling or fused filament fabrication. They basically generate a spool of a thermoplastic and put it through an instrument which uh, effectively deposits that material in a layer by layer, kind of a line by line manner, uh, very similar to like a hot glue gun, more or less that most people would be familiar with. And then we have the technologies that we focus on here at Henkel. We are 100% focused on photopolymer materials. These materials effectively start as a liquid when the user receives them or puts them into a printer. Those printers themselves can be massive vats, 200 liters, 500 liters, uh, or quite small, down to maybe 200 milliliters or somewhere in that ballpark. All of these effectively need some sort of UV radiation light source, which can be a high intensity laser uh, or some sort of projection-based system like LEDs behind an LCD array, uh, sorry, LCD panel, um, or a projector to be able to deliver that UV light. When you shine that UV light on it, it basically turns it from a liquid to a solid. And in each of these, you're forming it really in a layer by layer manner, one layer at a time, curing a section, getting some more material to basically cover up the next area, wash, rinse, repeat, and at some point you will generate your full part. Um, so for us, uh, what we do is focus on delivering excellence in 3D printing and in photopolymer materials uh, across really a broad range uh, from users in the hobbyist space to medical professionals and all the way to folks who are manufacturing at the industrial scale. Well, now in contrast to Wyatt's perspective, Beverly, could you share your role and involvement in the realm of 3D printing? Yeah, I actually have some FDM printers right here behind me. Um, yeah, there's like 11 of them in this shop right now um, on the repair bench, actually. Uh, we do repairs. So yeah, we use a lot of those same techniques, uh, less of the metal fusing, but FDM printers and SLA resin printers in the shop. And it's been so fascinating watching this journey because I started 3D printing as a hobbyist about three, maybe four years ago. And... I remember seeing 3D printers in a museum about five or six years ago, and these 3D printers were thousands of dollars, just like $2,000. And even like a, like a few months ago, my brother-in-law came to visit and he goes, oh my God, that machine must be thousands. I was like, no, the one on my desk right there, that's 300 bucks, you know? So, and you can get a pretty decent desktop 3D printer. You know, we our base model that we sell here at the shop is only $250. And I teach 10 year olds how to operate this. We do summer camps starting at ages eight years old and they're learning CAD modeling. They're, you know, and then the parents will come in the week after and say, hey, my kid had so much fun in your summer camp and they're engineering all day instead of playing video games. <laughs> how do I do this? And I was like, oh, your kid can have a 3D printer on their desk for $300 with some filament, you know, like the material costs of this hobby is so cheap and accessible. And that makes you go, why doesn't everyone just have one? And it's because they don't know that it's, that you can get started for $300. And that's kind of why I opened my shop. You know, people come in all the time. They're like, oh, how it's gotta be super expensive. I was like, 
No, it's the same price as a good sewing machine. <laughs> you know, any hobby I've, you know, you need about that amount of money to get started. So everything from D&D figurines to, you know, the flexi fidget toys are popular to making household products. You know, my mom has, you know, she bought her house 20 years ago and it came with these curtains. She broke a curtain clip and she brought me the other one and we were just able to measure it, recreate it and 3D printer a new one for 50 cents of material. So it's just, I think it's going to change the world and how like decentralized manufacturing is going to be a thing. You can just make things as you need them. And I'm just so excited to be, you know, what I feel is that, you know, towards the forefront making this happen. Kevin, could you elaborate on where Baldwin Technology, you know, positions itself within the spectrum of like 3D printing uh, that we've discussed thus far? Yeah, we're UV sources. So there's, is, is Wyatt and, and Beverly both explain, there's a multitude of different processes that you could use. It's called it grouped in additive manufacturing, but there's one specific area and that's UV curable materials. And we provide the UV photons basically that are done in either in the 3D printer and maybe Wyatt and Beverly could speak to it, but there's also a lot of times with UV a post-cure process. So yeah, that's that's where Baldwin fits in. Well, could you each uh, share some insights into the types of customers you cater to, as well as just the diverse range of products uh, they engage in printing? Because I'm sure each of you have a different perspective there. Let's go ahead and start with you, Wyatt. Certainly, uh, we are quite broad. Uh, we have a suite of products targeted towards the hobbyist user where some of the materials will work on those super low cost printers. You know, as Beverly mentioned, uh, for some of the uh, filament based printers, those are down in the couple of hundred bucks sort of range. There are some now on the photopolymer side that are even down at that level. It's really the most accessible, most entry level. And, uh, you know, as, as Beverly mentioned, for stuff like minis, that's uh, certainly a very a very significant market. So we have people who are doing that, making some toys or some basic models for things at home, maybe making a replacement part for, you know, a, a part of their car, or a toy that they broke or something like that. Um, the real key focus for us though is really on professional end users. So this would be medical professionals such as in dental. Um, we, uh, we've served quite a few, I, I think it's over 3 million, 4 million, 5 million uh, patients in the uh, medical industry so far, uh, which is super exciting for me, knowing that our you know products are actually making a significant impact directly to people's lives and their health and well-being. Uh, and then we have the industrial side. Um, Henkel is such a large industrial focused company with its adhesive lines that that's really why Henkel got into 3D printing to be able to continue providing solutions to those real end users, those real manufacturers who are trying to solve industrial problems. And Kevin. Uh, yeah, I, I would say we're kind of in the same space why it is uh, with, you know, basically looking towards semi-production type of devices. So, um, you know, I'm kind of going to say our, our products aren't really key for the hobbyist, uh, but we do, uh, if, uh, sources for the uh, post-gear process. And of course, you know, there's a, a couple of different 
photon generators. You can use LEDs, which is by far away the most common now. And, uh, and why I could go into chemistry, uh, but you can almost B-stage it, meaning a partial cure, and then you get it off the printer and into a post-cure, um, uh, basically almost like a rotisserie uh, unit, exposing it and saturating it with more UV to get your final cure. And Beverly. So I'm so glad that you two are doing like all the hard work for the research and development because I'm going to get that in like a year or two and on like the consumer side. So we actually have a surprisingly large range. Um, we have everything from architecture models to prototyping from the universities. We actually are one of the only businesses in the U.S. that will not only sell you all the, the materials and the printers, but will also go and install them into your facility like a... I was just yesterday, I installed six printers in a high school for their entrepreneurship class and their technology class. So these high schoolers are going to learn how to code and prototype tiny little robots and design them and print them. And that's just so exciting. We do pop-up maker spaces for summer camps and we have a range of all ages. You know, you've got, you know, the teenagers and middle schoolers, high schoolers that want to get in technology and the parents investing in their education, which is one of the reasons why we picked Raleigh for the score. There's, you know, a lot of that audience here, but also we have your nerds that want their D&D dice towers and their minis, you know, they love the resin printers. And then we have, you know, for the smaller creators. So one of my other projects is I actually also run an incubator for minorities. So it's a curated incubator, um, and makerspace for you know, independent artists to come test new products. And we utilize 3D printing, you know, at a small scale on a small batch of, you know, a musician might just need, you know, 20 keychains. And I was like, okay, here we go. Let's do this. Let's make something unique. Let's make something cool. And that is just, I love just empowering people to be able to create. And it's just so cool that you know some of the sla printers you can get a small resin printer that you can fit eight dnd minis on for 320 dollars. so and you just have it on your desk like wow that's just so incredible and you know beverly as a leading figure in 3d printing services how could you just share how your company uh, bridges the gap with open source resins that cater to various printing needs yeah so Part of what we do on the consulting, what I do personally, is we stay up to date and keep everyone else informed. So that's why we go to trade shows to meet, you know, really amazing people like like Kevin and White and say, okay, so what is the new material? And that discovery for that material is so much fun. Um, there is filament that conducts electricity. So you can do wireless conductive filament and that just completely blew my mind there is a porcelain infused resin that we just got in and you can 3d print a porcelain sculpture you can fire like like real porcelain like pottery that is and i'm like that's just wow we can have that and people just don't it's you don't know that it exists until you know it exists and i think with the technology and it's changing so fast that it's like every day I could wake up and there could be something completely new and completely different. And I'm here for it. Like, show me, tell me where this is and let me open that up to the average person. 
And Wyatt, could you elaborate on the significance of Henkel being an open source supplier of resins that are, you know, compatible with various types of printers? How does this type of approach impact uh, the 3D printing landscape as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I, I just had a thought as uh, as Beverly was sharing that one one of the things that we often don't know is exactly how people are going to use materials. We have such a broad capability with different types of chemistries, different type of composites, special sort of properties. You know, often we have view on, you know, a handful of different applications that can be used for, but then at the end of the day, we get it out there, get it into the world, and then people are going to find a hundred other ways to use it. And that's super exciting and super fun for us. Um, you know, his, historically, if we look back about 10 years ago, uh, there was no relationship between photopolymer materials and performance. Uh, photopolymer materials had the reputation of being super brittle for a 3D bulk part. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to have been part of the wave to really transform the capabilities of photopolymers. So the reason it's significant is that there wasn't a demand for uh, specific materials quite yet in the industry and kind of what we're what we're looking at right now, what's on hand right now, because they really didn't exist. So uh, at the same time, most systems were closed. There was a manufacturer who was making the material, the hardware, the software kind of all encompassed to provide a single solution to those users. As time developed and as we got more materials out there, not just us, but a lot of our uh, colleagues um, throughout the industry, people started to demand a specific material or a group of materials, which really caused a wave of so many different printer platforms, printer OEMs, opening up their systems because their users said, hey, I really want this Loctite product um, or who, whatever competitor it may be. Um, and that has kind of led to a bit of a renaissance in the way that 3D printing is being approached now and uh, has given way to more players uh, really entering the arena and having a stronger entry and capability to be able to bring their innovations to the stage. And Kevin, how does this fit into what you're seeing Baldwin customers request in the world of 3D printing? Well, I'm just going to piggyback on both what Beverly and Wyatt said. Um, over the decade, what you've seen is uh, people trying to replicate what the specifications uh, to Wyatt's point of the traditional materials. So I want to have those same properties. And now it's transitioned in what you're hearing where they're saying, hey, we'll we'll do composite materials. We're going to do a lot of different things that you can't typically do because you frankly have more control of, of the process. So, you know, we're a supplier. I mean, all we could do is, is, is provide equipment to a specification, frankly. Um, and, and that's why we work really closely with formulators is we need to understand uh, what their needs are. And then of course, there's the people actually making the, uh, uh, the, the UV 3D modeling and they're actually using a lamp who's, who could be following it. There's projection devices. I mean, why I could talk about the different ways the initial uh, part is made and then maybe a little bit more on the post care. You know, uh, following up on that as well, Kevin, could you t uh, share with us a little bit about the role that Baldwin Technology plays uh, in the 3D printing arena, but specifically in the context of UV curing and its advantages? Ah, well, UV curing is, is uh, you know, 
it's 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 a free radical reaction typically not always but the point is it's very fast it's amazingly fast i mean to the point of when you think about even heat cured materials um this is like a million times faster that reaction and is the 3d printing is taking place as it builds up it's continued to be bathed in uv and what you're doing is you're trying to form the product and then again i keep going back to this post cure but in many ways this post cure is a critical step of moving that from the printer and getting your final property set Sure. Uh, and Wyatt, could you provide some uh, more insights in terms of the substantial influence that uh, of UV curing on the ultimate attributes and visual characteristics of printed objects? I mean, uh, also, how does this alignment with Henkel's dedication to delivering, uh, you know, the exceptional quality that you guys do in performance in its offerings? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really piggybacking off of uh, all, all of uh, all the topics that Kevin has alluded to. Uh, generally, when we are 3D printing a photopolymer inside most of the standard systems used today, uh, the chemical reaction that occurs to go from liquid to a solid has some degree of conversion inside the printer. And that can be anywhere from you know, 10 or 15% on the low end, maybe up to 90% or higher. And that's effectively the reaction of those chemical bonds that are being triggered by the UV light inside the printer. Now, that's usually not enough. Um, one, from a safety perspective, we want to make sure we can convert as many of those uh, as many of those chemicals as possible to ensure that we're reaching a solid state and a state where those chemicals won't actually cause any sort of adverse reaction to the user. Um, and that's where these post-cure systems come in. Uh, after coming out of the printer, you go and clean that part, and then you put it into a post-cure system. These post-cure systems can be really anything from a low-powered LED array, you know, single wavelength, 405 nanometer is pretty common, to a uh, um, really an industrial broad-spectrum conveyor belt <laughs> um, on, on the other side that would be used for production. The ways that uh, these impact the materials is, uh, is pretty broad. I'd, I'd say there are probably three key areas that I would consider. Uh, the first would be mechanical properties. That's a big part of the game right now in the industry is making materials with mechanical properties that can meet the performance requirements of the applications. So if you just cure it a tiny little bit, you're probably not going to reach the full potential of that material. If you cure it more, you're gonna reach some sort of optimal state of it. Uh, and if you overbake it or you know effectively give it too much UV energy, you can actually start to get degradation. So that's one key factor. Um, all of these techniques as well can certainly influence the dimensional stability. Um, that intensity of light, the wavelength of light, that'll influence the kinetics and how quickly the material cures, how much heat will also be generated during that reaction. So that can cause parts to warp or alternatively, it can form a you know more solid part much faster and be able to de develop stronger mechanical integrity faster. Uh, the other key quality here that you mentioned in regards to appearance is color. Um, all of these chemistries that go in here have different reactions to different types of UV light. Um, and depending on what sort of application you're working on, color can be really critical. If the part's black, it's pretty much black. If you're making something that needs to be nice and clear, if you're making a part that you intend to go into a lens or something like that, uh, color and clarity is going to be a really critical factor. So. The uh, final UV curing certainly has a uh, very important role to play there. Um, for us, 
probably one of the biggest challenges we have as an open material, open uh, platform material provider is being able to hit um, as many different pieces of hardware as we can to suit as many users as we can. Because from a chemistry side, we generally know what's going to work best to push the performance of the material to the optimal state. But unfortunately, um, users won't always have that equipment. They, they'll have the, you know, the post-cure unit that came with their printer. They'll you know, have some sort of limitation um, or you know, some ecosystem that they say, hey, no, this is the ecosystem I'm going to work with. I'm going to do my best within this ecosystem. So one of our key roles and one of the values that we provide is through collecting a massive amount of data through what we call workflow validation uh, to really identify the strengths, the weaknesses of different pieces of hardware, different workflows, as we figure out how these materials work in a bunch of different ecosystems. And Beverly, could you elaborate on the variety of resins and curing techniques that you employ for different types of printed objects? Yeah, so we work with a lot of artists, or if you want, or we'll do pieces for, you know, maybe a manufacturer, maybe a prototype. And, you know, we um, typically with our SLA printers, we take them out, we we clean them up, like mine says, and then we put them in a wash and cure station. So, you know, like I said, we're going a little bit smaller scale here. And, you know, we have our settings. And sometimes if I want to get really creative, I'm very experimental. Um, fashion tech's like my hobby. I'll use a 3D pen. So I get manicures done and I get gel manicures, which uses the same technology for my nails. Mm -hmm. And that's what inspired me to do the partial cures of, because I was getting chrome nails. So my like weird experiments is actually doing partial cures, adding chrome mica powders to them, and then doing a full cure or even coating them on a liquid, a second time with a liquid resin. And I totally stole that technique from getting manicures for years. <laughs> but um, sometimes I'm a little chaotic and I'll actually just stick it in the sunshine. Like if it's like a, a really easy part, like my business partner calls me the chaos theory, I'll just stick it in the sun. I'm, I live in California. <laughs> it's always sunny. <laughs> so, you know, and then I have to set up the washing cure station, the two in one. So it's pretty, you know, consumer grade UV light. It's pretty simple. You trim it, you cure it. But it is nice because when you pull it straight out of the printer, you have a little bit. It's got like almost like a gummy bear rubber tire type texture to it you know, before you put it in the cure station. So you can you can play with it a little bit and hopefully not break it. There's always a chance of it splitting. You know, I think there's about a 10% chance of failure in general when you're doing, you know, just 3D printing of a part just not coming out the way you want it to. And that's just part of life. Well, you know, as we... <laughs> As we continue this conversation, I want to open up the floor to you all again. Just, you know, how are you seeing the various aspects of 3D printing, everything we just talked about, uh, contributing to the industry's growth and shaping its future? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to keep getting better. It's going to keep getting safer. Um, one of the big trends that we've seen recently is a higher understanding and a higher consciousness and a higher demand from consumers and end users to really understand how safe the materials are, how safe the parts are that they're actually handling after the 3D printing area, uh, after the actual 3D printing process. And uh, for folks like Beverly and all the people that um, she works with on the day-to-day, -day, it's really important for uh, us as material providers, for working groups uh, like PAMA uh, to be able to share that information, to be able to provide the proper guidance to make sure that you know, people using this technology really 
understand how it works and how to keep themselves safe because for photopolymer technology, it is reactive chemistry, right? We need to make sure that people are doing so responsibly. We teach safety training classes for resin printing because you need ventilation. Like it's got like some materials have fumes, some materials don't. And that is, I think a lot of people think 3D printing is bigger and scarier than it is. But when you look at a 3D printer, either that, either the SLA is like, it's a couple motors and a, and a, it's a, it's a glorified hot glue gun, <laughs> like on a, on some pulleys. <laughs> You know, that's what it really is at the end of the day. You know, you either just like use the UV here or a hot piece to make it do, and then the computer tells it where to go. It's a shockingly simple machine, you know, at the baseline. The science really is in the materials. And that's where you get to get really, really creative because how the machine operates, it's, it's G-code. Like it's just a bunch of letters and numbers and coordinates all time together and it's those materials and learning how to use them in those applications and the science behind it that's just truly fascinating and kevin how are you seeing all these various aspects of 3d printing contributing to the industry's growth oh well it, it, it's fascinating and, and you know now that consumers are in it it was just you know to give you an example uh beverly talked about you know the the fingernail right it, and you know, UV curing has been used for eons in, in traditional printing and also in coatings for, uh, you know, uh, for example, a lot of your wear coatings are all UV cured, but these are all done in industrial environments with, with trained personnel. And back to Wyatt and Beverly, now you have consumers even using using UV light. So um, it's, it's not a controlled environment per se. So, you know, we're doing as much as we can up front to make sure everything's safe, um, and, but education's involved. And when it comes to the UV sources, I mean, we're providing photons and different photons at different wavelengths do different things. So we're working closely with formulators to understand what their needs are in helping them. Because at the end of the day, selling photons, I got to cure something. And I only cure something if somebody formulates something. So uh, the key is, of course, supporting the formulators as, as best we can. And and um, and, and with that, we we obtain business. Yeah. Well, we're uh, coming to the end of the podcast here. You know, uh, I'm going to hand it over to you again, Wyatt. Uh, could you provide insights into the current tolerances you're achieving with your 3D printing technology and also your aspirations as the technology just continues to evolve? I mean, how do you foresee the implementation of uh, PAMA guidelines impacting the safe handling of UV curable 3D printing resins and what changes or advancements should users anticipate in the coming future? I know it's a loaded question, so take your time. Yeah, no, there's there's certainly a lot there. I'll I'll touch on a, a couple uh, a couple points uh, when it comes down to tolerances and uh, the the type of parts that can actually be made. Uh, I think a lot of this really comes down to the hardware. There are some companies that specialize in uh, developing printers that have resolutions down to one micron, for example, and that can be in the X, Y, and Z planes. That's really really incredible. Um, for us, kind of the standard state of the art is around 100 micron layer thickness, maybe a resolution in the XY, somewhere in that same ballpark, maybe a little bit less. Um, uh, and that's pretty good for most parts. Uh, it 
is kind of within range of a lot of the mil spec requirements. Um, and uh, when it comes down to those specific tolerances and repeatability, it really comes down to hardware, hardware more than anything else. Um, when it comes down to some of the other trends, the guidelines coming from HEMA um, uh, and, and beyond, I, I think what we'll see is a strengthening and a maturity of the user base uh, to really understand what they really want and what they really need. Because I believe that the performance of the materials is already there for a lot of applications, whether or not those applications have already been unlocked. We have plenty of materials uh, that you know you can print apart, throw it against the ground, uh, stick it in the car on a hot summer day, it's not gonna deform. It can do a lot of your basic plastic needs when it comes down to it. Um, performance will continue on a track towards uh, towards increasing to be able to suit more applications and be able to solve more problems. But the other side there uh, really will be people understanding to a higher degree what they're bringing into their facility, uh, whether that's somebody's home or garage, which is concerning right now with the state of some of the materials going out there. There's stuff that is quite hazardous that people are putting their hands into in the garage, and we want to avoid that at all costs. So we're taking a very strong stance and you know working on products to make sure that people in those spaces are as safe as possible. Um, and really same thing on the industrial scale. Um, the regulatory side of chemicals is becoming more and more conservative. With that, there are you know certain photo initiators like TPO um, that have been really, a, that one's been a workhorse in the UV curing industry. I don't know, Kevin, you probably know better than I do, but 30, 40 years, I don't know. It's It's been around. Um, and most 3D printing materials use it, uh, but they're constantly changing regulations around this. And even if it doesn't restrict the use, um, users are saying, you know, there's probably a reason why these restrictions are coming through. We're going to say no more of that stuff because we expect that trend to continue. So um, all of these things will kind of fit into a better, safer technology package as a whole. Um, and hopefully the in entire ecosystem from us as the material manufacturers to the real end users down the line, having a much better understanding of what their real needs are um, and making sure that they can do so safely. Well, that wraps up the conversation for today. So I want to extend my heartfelt gratitude to our guests today, Beverly, Kevin, and Wyatt for talking us uh, talking to us today on this panel and sharing their invaluable insights. This has been a truly enlightening discussion. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Of course. Before we sign off here, do any of y'all have any last thoughts or um, ways that people can reach out to you if they have any additional questions and uh, they want to reach out? Um, you can uh, reach out to us at our website, which is loctiteam.com for Loctite Additive Manufacturing. Um, in addition, uh, we are represented on most of the industrial scale uh, printer manufacturer uh, websites since we have our material materials placed there. So if you're poking around, you'll probably see our name. Fantastic. Well, thank you all again for joining us on this episode of Unlocking Potential. To all of you listening, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. Stay tuned for more captivating conversations that explore the frontiers of technology and innovation. I've been your host, Gabrielle. Thanks for tuning in.